Okay, so I did it again. I split this week's sermon into two parts. I still haven't figured out what that means moving forward, but I'll figure that out. Um, but there are two reasons why. First of all, um, it was, there was too much material for an average uh, person to digest in one sitting. Um, too much important, significant stuff. And secondly, this passage contains what, according to many scholars of Revelation, is the very heart of the book of Revelation. And two verses in particular, verse 10 and 11, and it seemed to me that those verses need more than passing attention as, as we uh, go through this book. We're going to read the entire chapter, Revelation 12, again, but we're only going to focus this morning on verses 7 to 12. So let's start from the beginning of Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She, came, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now here's the part we're going to focus on this morning. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... And by the way, these are the verses that are said to be the heart of the book of Revelation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And now I'm continuing, but this is the part we're going to focus on next week. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of, a great e of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And I know there's a last little sentence in chapter 12. And he stood on the sand of the sea. But that actually belongs to the next vision. You see the chapter divisions are not inspired. They're something that man came up with late, much later. And uh, this one seems to have been, this chapter division seems to have been made while he was riding horseback. And he just happened to put it down in the wrong place. And so that one goes with chapter 13. So we'll cover that when we get there. Okay, so last week we talked about this woman uh, who is uh, the church and how she was giving birth to the, the Messiah, Jesus, and how uh, the, the, this great red dragon appeared and um, who was set to try to devour this child and how Satan has, you know, through various means has sought to uh, prevent Jesus, to, to ruin him and then to prevent him from doing his work. Um, but God protected him and he was caught up to heaven and then the woman went to the wilderness for this period of protection and nourishment. But this new section that we're dealing with today, I want to break it into three parts and walk through it with you. First of all, 7, 8, and 9. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting with, against the dragon, and then defeating the dragon, and throwing the dragon out of heaven, along with his angels, say, uh, the dragon's angels. Okay, so we're told very clearly in this half of the passage who the dragon is. Satan himself. The ancient serpent, that is the serpent right from the Garden of Eden. That's what it means, the ancient serpent. The one from the very beginning, um, the devil and Satan. But, if if in one corner, if in this corner is Satan, who's in the other corner? It's Michael. Michael. Okay, who is this Michael? Well, if you read this just on your own, reading it for the first time and not knowing the Bible, you could easily think that this Michael refers to Jesus. But this passage isn't all by itself. It's in the context of God's word. And we read in the book of Daniel about this Michael. He's, he's talked about a number of times there. And there he seems to be the angel 
of the people of Israel. Now let me read you a little quote from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Michael, which means who is like God, first appears in Daniel 10.13 and later in Daniel 12.1 as Israel's patron angel. Michael is identified as Israel's prince, the protector of Daniel's people, and thus the one who fights the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The book of Daniel reveals how the battles between nations on earth are mirrored in the heavenly realm. Remember that we've seen this several times already in the book of Revelation and even elsewhere in the Bible, whereby Israel or particular churches or even individuals are said to have a guardian angel assigned to them by God to protect and aid them. In Daniel, Michael is seen fighting against the evil angels of the nations around them, around Israel. In fact, in Daniel's vision in Daniel 10, Daniel, I'm sorry, Michael actually fights alongside the Son of Man, but isn't the same person. So it's best to view Michael not as the same as Jesus, but as the angel of God's people. And here he is said to be throwing out Satan and his cohorts like a heavenly bouncer would throw out those who are causing trouble into the street. But he throws them out of heaven. Now, we read in verse 4 that about Satan sweeping a third of the angels down from heaven. That seems to refer to when Satan led the wicked angels in the original rebellion from God where they fell and, be, and uh, there were wicked angels and that departed from the rest of their angelic family who remained in heaven. But in contrast, here in this passage, this being thrown down is different. Verse 7 and 8 seem to depict what took place as a result of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, as we see here in verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love We have an explanation of how this great victory over Satan, whereby he was cast out of heaven, was accomplished. It was the work of Christ. Now that the first sentence in verse 10 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now you remember, from the very earliest days of mankind, God had promised a day when he would send salvation to his people. When he would display his power, setting up his Messiah, his Christ, as king and as ruler over all the earth. And now finally that day has arrived and the announcement has come.
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So it's clearly referring to the coming of Christ and his work whereby God gives him authority over all other powers. Now Satan in this passage is referred to to fill out the story and the picture that we have here in this vision Satan is said to be the accuser of the brethren who accuses him who accuses them day and night before God. Now so so notice this isn't Satan accusing them in their own consciences that's not what this is about. This is Satan accusing them before God. It seems that before Christ came, Satan was allowed a role as the accuser of the brethren. Accuser of God's people. And before the death of Christ, Satan appeared to have a pretty compelling case. Believers had no basis for thinking of themselves as forgiven. Justice had not been met. But when Christ came and suffered on the cross as a sacrificial substitute, when the wrath of God for sinners was poured out upon him, then justice was satisfied and Satan had no more argument. Now he can no longer bring any legitimate accusation against those for whom Christ died. Greg Beale says, the devil no longer had any basis for his accusations against the saints since the penalty that they deserved and that he pleaded for had at last been exacted in Christ's death. So this week, as most of you know, I was at our denominational meeting, the General Assembly in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, there are very detailed rules about how the discussion of things can take place called parliamentary procedure on the floor during these meetings. Only certain people can speak at certain times and they're given a limit, limited amount of time to say what they have to say. Sometimes a person stands up and makes an argument about an issue and then someone else politely and respectfully demolishes his argument. But the demolisher, you see, is not allowed to interrupt the first person. No matter how certain he is that the first person's argument is fallacious. And so he stands there at the microphone, patiently waiting for his turn, allowing others to ignorantly spout their opinions, knowing well that when it's his turn, his poor adversary will be so embarrassed he will wish that he hadn't said anything at all. This is a regular experience at General Assembly. And this reminds me a little bit of what we have here in this passage. You see, Satan smelled something awry in God's kindness and forgiveness of his people. He perceived that he had a pretty strong argument in accusing them before God. How can you justify those who sinned against you? That's unjust. They broke your law. Justice demands that they be punished. 
You know that all those animal sacrifices can't really satisfy justice for these people. They deserve to die. And for a long time, God held his mouth and allowed the devil to level these accusations. But then he sent his son to die on the cross, to bear the penalty his people deserved, and thereby he demolished all of Satan's arguments. For suddenly it had become clear how God could both be just and be the justifier of his people, as we're told in Romans 3.26. So how was Satan overthrown? We're told the brethren conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Now, we've already talked about how our accuser has been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. We live because he died. We are forgiven because he was punished. He was the sacrificial Lamb who did count as our substitute, for he was of our human flesh and spotless and infinite. But what about the second part? They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They refused to deny Christ even under the threat of death. And thereby, they proved the reality of their faith by honoring Christ even if it meant they would die. Remember that at the end of each of the letters to the seven churches, in Revelation 2 and 3, we're told that those who conquer will be rewarded with heavenly treasures. And this is saying the same thing. You see, when a person says, I'm a Christian, he must ultimately prove the reality of his faith by conquering, by overcoming, by believing and upholding Christ to the very end. If he abandons Christ, it will prove that he never had true faith in the first place. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. In these the first two letters, in 2.26, it says, he who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And 321, he who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And at the very end, in 21.7, he who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so, they conquered by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. And now verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, 
For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now we'll talk, we're actually going to do 12 to 17. We'll cover 12 in both weeks next week. But this week, I just want to point out two things from this verse 12. For, but first, let me ask you a question. Verse 12 speaks of two groups. Those, those who dwell on the, in heaven and those who dwell on the earth. And very different uh, things to say about them. Uh, how blessed are one group and woe to the other group. So the question is this. Which group are we a part of? Are we counted as those who dwell in heaven? Or are we among those who live on earth? Or could we be both? I think we're both. I think the first group is believers, the citizens of heaven. This is what we're told in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I think we are those who dwell in the heavens in that sense. The second group is those who dwell on earth, which doesn't include our loved ones who have gone to heaven before us, but it does sort of include us. This is our address right now. This is where we live. So, here are the two things I believe that this passage has to say to us that I want to point out this morning. First of all, we have great reason to rejoice. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Our accuser has been thrown down and he's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the perseverance of our faith and our refusal to deny the Savior even in the face of worldly pressures and satanic deceptions. But the second thing is that we need to gird up our loins and get ready for battle because the devil has come down to us in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He has been defeated by Christ, but he is not dead. In fact, he's enraged and he's attacking the people of Christ. As the seed of the woman, through Christ, we have dealt a, the serpent a mortal blow to his head. But the serpent is still capable of wounding our heels. This, of course, is a reference back to the promise of God in, in Genesis 3, 15 and 16. We'll talk more about that next week. But three things I want to leave us with from this passage this morning. First of all, and this is very counterintuitive, but by persevering in the face of suffering, we are actually participating in Christ's victory over the devil. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 
They conquered by enduring the suffering and not giving in. The suffering of Christians is a sign, not of Satan's victory, Greg Beale says, but of the saints' victory because over Satan because of their belief in the triumph of the cross. Every time we keep moving forward in Christ, in spite of the pain, in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the opposition, we are declaring Christ's victory over his enemies and our enemies. And even if no one else notices, heaven notices. Our job isn't to work to make our lives easier. Our job isn't to whine about how things have gotten much, much worse than they used to be. Our job is to trust in the blood of the Lamb. Our job is to hold forth His word in a hostile world. Our job is to love not our lives even unto death. That's how we conquer the devil. That's how we resist the powers of evil. What does it mean to love not our lives even unto death? It means that no matter how much suffering we experience, we keep trusting in Christ and remembering that our sufferings are small compared to the reward that is to come. Romans 8:18. 8, What's happening in our lives isn't the big thing. What God is doing in our lives and in the world and in history, that's the big thing. So don't love your life. Don't love your house. Don't love your career. Don't even love your family. Don't love your marriage or your health. Love Jesus Christ and his house and his redemptive purposes and his kingdom and his word and his hope and his people even to the point of death for his loving kindness is better than life. Psalm 63.3 The second thing it is easy for us to focus on our trials instead of focusing on our triumph. It's easy for us to focus on our trials instead of focusing on our triumph. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he urges us to set our minds on the things above and not on the things which are on earth in Colossians 2. Because the things of the earth can be so riveting, so gripping. That's why he calls us to not let our attention be distracted. All of us have been in situations where we're trying to watch something or listen to someone and someone is doing something that's so distracting, getting in the way or, or making noise and it's hard for us to pay attention to the really important thing and be, not be distracted by the silliness that's going on. Well, that's the same thing here. We, God calls us to keep our attention to the triumph and not to our trials. 
This passage and others like it are here because God wants his embattled people to know that though they are engaged in fierce combat against the forces of darkness, the victory has indeed already been won and they just need to hold on for a little while longer. We have experiences which rivet our attention upon our pain or upon our worry or upon our anger. And the thing God calls us to do in those times is to force ourselves to direct our attention to the realities of Christ in heaven. You remember Stephen. I love his example in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was being stoned, being killed, and he died in it at the end. He's being stoned, a circle of people picking up stones and throwing it at him, and yet he didn't even seem to notice because he was focusing on Christ in heaven. Read the passage, the end of Acts 7. Can you imagine having a group of people throwing rocks at you? That's pretty distracting. You know, no matter what you're trying to do, you're sitting there, people throwing rocks at you. And yet, he saw Jesus at the right hand of God, and that's what captured his attention. And that's basically the kind of situation we're in. There's things happening in our lives that are easy to, to be distracted by and take our eyes off of Christ. What happened to Peter when he tried to walk on the water? Remember? He was doing fine, and then the waves and the winds started to distract him, and he began to sink. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the point here. We don't need to be successful. We just need to be faithful. We don't need human approval. We have God's approval. We don't need the world's treasures. They can be lost or stolen or destroyed. We already have the greatest treasure of all. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and no one can take him away from us. The third and final thing I'd like to address, we don't need to worry about our future. You know, as we age, it's common to worry about the future. You know, am I going to get sick? Am I going to, um, you know, get that dreaded diagnosis that tells me that my life is almost over? Am I going to go through terrible, painful circumstances? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to be left alone? All these things, am I going to be you know, sitting as a vegetable in a nursing home for years on it. A Christian has no reason to fear. I know that for me, either the Lord will return in my lifetime, or I'm going to die without growing much older, which means soon, because I'm growing older fast, or I'm going to grow old and die. But even though I may grow old and die, pain or loneliness or loss of my mind, I know that whatever happens, I am being sheltered from any unnecessary hardship and any spiritual harm. 
Meaning that God will give me whatever grace I need to persevere. I also know that any trials which I experience will be tempered by the Lord's wisdom and knowledge of my weakness. I also know that Jesus will be with me through it all. And I know that when it's all over, I will be with him in paradise. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I can tell you one thing. For the one who loves Christ, his future is going to be magnificent. His future is going to be a masterpiece that many in the, one day will be awed by. And they will, ex they will open their eyes wide and they will say, Wow, what a great God did this. It will be like when people see Bryce Canyon for the first time. Or Yosemite. Or Crater Lake. Or Zion National Park. Or Garden of the Gods. Or other amazing places that just take your breath away for their beauty. One day people will see the end of your life and they will have that reaction because they'll see the magnificence and the beauty of it that God alone did. We don't have to hope that things turn out well for us in the future because we know that it has been designed already by the greatest designer of all, the Lord himself. We don't have to hope that things turn out well for us in the future because the thing we really need to happen has already happened. The Son of God has conquered. It is finished. Let us pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set a table in the wilderness for weary travelers to refresh them and strengthen them on their journey. And we thank you, dear Lord, that each week we can stop and partake of this supernatural nourishment where we not only remember Jesus and all that he did for us that our salvation and forgiveness might be procured, but that we can partake of the pattern that he set that triumph comes by faithful service and ultimately by dying. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us every day of our lives to look up to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith who will be with us and that and empower us to live in the manner that he lived with our eyes fixed on him. Please help us now as we come to the table to celebrate his work as we anticipate the day when we will see him face to face and live in his 
embrace. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.